All right, we are Hebrews chapter 7 again, um, part 2 there. So if you were here last week, you know that we started and got into Hebrews 7. We did a lot of hard historical work in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Um, So we're going to finish out chapter 7 of Hebrews today, verses 11 through 28. Um, Abraham Lincoln famously said, Give me six hours to chop down a tree. I'll spend the first four sharpening my axe. I kind of feel like last week was our first four hours. We were doing all of our hard work. You know, I said we were going to dig for diamonds instead of raking for leaves. We did some historical work. We did some hermeneutical work, which is just a fancy way of saying how you study a passage in the Bible. Um, We did some theology work with David prophesying in the Psalms. And now we get the payoff of it. We get the application of everything we learned about Melchizedek last week in in the second half of our chapter in our text this morning. Um, So Lincoln Rays has a bunch of handouts if you don't have those. Um, I'm not sure if I put the term Melchizedekian on it. Last time everybody that was taking notes just like looked at me and groaned when I threw that word out there having to do with Melchizedek. So get a handout from Lincoln. He's happy to pass those out, I guess, if you go see him. Um, And we are in Hebrews chapter 7. So just a summary in case you weren't here or if it was too much information and it's completely gone from your mind. So last week we looked at this mysterious man, Melchizedek, who just pops up in history in Genesis 14. He's there for about three verses And then he disappears again, and nobody really knows what happens to him. Um, And from those three verses, though, we see a lot of things. We see that he's the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. He's the king of peace, because the city that he's a king of means peace. And he's also a priest king, which is something that's not allowed under the, the Mosaic law. Of course, he's 1,400 years before the law came. Um, So he is a priest king. He's interesting because Genesis is full of genealogies. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And then they died after 718 years or whatever it would be. But Melchizedek is weird because he has no mom listed, no dad listed, no birthday listed, and no day of his death listed. So he kind of has this eternal flavor to him that's like, well, apparently Moses didn't see fit to list any of the important information that we would always have in the book of Genesis. And then we see he's greater than Abraham. We saw that for two reasons. First, because Abraham paid tithes to this king priest. And then second, because this king priest blessed Abraham. So we see his greatness over Abraham. And then the author of Hebrews makes another remark. He's also greater than Levi because Levi was still in the loins of Abraham. And so if he's greater than Abraham, he's, if he's greater than the fountainhead, he's greater than all of the people that flow out of that fountain. So he's greater than Levi, who's kind of the chief over the priestly line. So he's greater than all of the Old Testament priests as well. So that's what we learned from Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. I think I summarized that on your sheet. As I was cutting those in half, I realized I really should have done front and back on those. It's pretty tight in there, but the whole back's empty if you're taking notes. Everything on the front is pretty much full. 
Um, then we started point two, kind of thinking theologically about Melchizedek. And let me uh, go ahead and read, you know, all of that point two through the rest of the chapter. It's Hebrews 7, 11 through 28. And it says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what farther need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood continually forever. Consequently, he is able to save the othermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So let's jump back into the second section here, thinking theologically about Melchizedek. What, what can we say about him? And in this section, if you remember, the author of Hebrews is kind of reflecting on Psalm 110, verse 4, where David writes, The Lord says, I, and the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, I have made you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we saw last week that the priesthood and the law are inseparably linked. That what the priesthood does, the law does. What the law does, the priesthood does. You can't separate these. And we have a new priest and a new priesthood, not one that's Levitical, that is under Levi, think, you know, as outlined in the book of Leviticus, but one that is Melchizedekian, one that fulfills this role of Melchizedek, and we see that in Christ. And this is something the Old Testament itself prophesies, right? That a greater priest 
is coming than at the priest that the law established. So when David writes that the Messiah would come in the line and the order of Melchizedek, he's saying in principle, this priesthood that I'm living under, the, the Levites coming, making their daily sacrifices, performing their ritual duties in the temple, this is going to be obsolete. Something better's coming. It wasn't in David's day. It wasn't soon after David's day. But David realized from studying Melchizedek, Genesis 14, that something greater is coming. And it arrived when Christ came and fulfilled his role as high priest. And so when Jesus comes, he again links the kingdom and the priesthood, something that could never be done under the old covenant. And yet... We have this priesthood of Levi, and you say, what do we do with this? Because we have this new priesthood under Christ. And so the Jews in the Hebrews' time, the author of Hebrews, when he's writing to the church, they're tempted, do we stay with Christ? Or do we go back to what we had under this old covenant, which the author of Hebrews is arguing, no, don't go back. Why would you go back? This has been fulfilled in Christ. There's nothing left for you over here. Stay with Christ. Like, I don't want us to miss how big of a deal this is. I think we think of like, oh, Jesus is the high priest. He fulfills the Old Testament. Sure, that's, that's normal. But for the Jewish people, this was massive. The priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, they're the backbone of Jewish culture. Like, I don't even know how to illustrate the importance of it. It's like, imagine you go to your U of M alumni association meeting. No. Eh? Everyone's like, careful, Dan. Like, you can say what you want about the tabernacle, but don't you talk bad about U of M. And the, and the, the guy gets up. And he says, we're a football school. I know we're a football school. We're always going to be a football school. But we're done with American football. We're going international football. We're, tri- we're changing the big house into a soccer stadium. We're going to put all of our money, all of our resources, all of our key athletes into our soccer team. It's a huge shift when your culture is based around something, and then you say there's something completely new that's coming out of it. So the author of Hebrews, he doesn't just make this bold claim that we're done with the old priesthood, we're starting with the new, but instead he argues it from the Old Testament. He argues from Scripture that we have this new priesthood. You know, he didn't have to. He could have been like, oh, you want a chapter and a verse that we have a new priesthood? Why don't you read Hebrews chapter 7 that I'm writing But no, he goes back to Genesis. He goes back to the Psalms to argue that Christ is this new priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we see that he gives us three lines of evidence of how he gets to this point. So how do we know Jesus is this high priest after Melchizedek and not just some other priest like we've had for thousands of years? Three reasons. Number one, Jesus is from Judah and not from Levi. We see this in verses 13 and 14. So the Old Testament makes it super clear. If you want to be a priest, you have to have the right ancestry. You have to be from the tribe of Levi. That's why genealogies are so important in the Old Testament. That's why Melchizedek not having a genealogy is so important. Because you have to prove yourself to be of Levi. 
Um, if you want to be the high priest, you have to prove yourself not just to be of Levi, but following the descent of Aaron, the first high priest. You can see this in Exodus 28, 29, 30, kind of those later chapters in Exodus. So that means, you know, if you go up to little Timmy and be like, Timmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he's from the tribe of Dan or Manasseh or Judah or Jesse or whoever. He can't be, I want to be a priest when I grow up. Because you don't get to choose to be a priest. It's a job you inherit. And he especially can't say, I want to be a high priest when I grow up. Because that's an even stricter qualification, a stricter lineage. You inherit this job from your family tree. And yet, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. We know that. And Moses says nothing about Judah when he's talking about priests. It's all the tribe of Levi. So either Jesus A, is not a priest, or B, he's a greater priest than the ones that the law appoints because instead of fulfilling the Old Testament role of Levitical priest, he's fulfilling this messianic, this Messiah's role of the Melchizedekian high priest, the one who reigns and intercedes forever. We are under a new priesthood and a new law because Jesus is not from Levi, but from Judah. Number two, we know Jesus is this high priest because he's appointed on his future and not his past. Look at verses 15 here with me. This becomes even more evident, which means, you know, 13 and 14 should have made things very crystal clear evident, but now we're just adding icing to the cake. It makes it even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, that is what the law says about where you came from or who you came from, but rather by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. And then we quote Psalm 110.4 again. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, so the author of Hebrews here is saying, look, the, the qualifications to be a priest are your family tree. That's it. That's what it takes to be qualified as a priest. So you can look at some priests like the sons of Eli. We hear about them in Second um, Samuel. They're just like a bunch of hooligan nincompoops, but their daddy's a priest, so they're following in line and they're taking the job of a priest. You read in 1 Samuel 2.12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And then you read on kind of about why they're worthless. Because they're sleeping with the women, ministering at the tabernacle. They're stealing from the offerings to fund their their adventures or whatever you want to call it. They're making sure that when somebody brings an offering and the law says you need to burn it up, they're like, well, hang on. Let's not burn this cow quite yet. Why don't we roast the cow to medium rare? We'll take out the prime rib. We're going to eat that because we're hungry and we want this prime rib. Then you can do whatever you want with the cow. We don't care what God says. We're just hungry. We want to feed ourselves our own appetites. And yet they are priests because they're in the right line, because their dad is a priest. And so they continue as priests until God kills them in judgment. But things are different with Jesus. He's not qualified to be a priest because he's in this priestly line, because he has the right bodily descent. Rather, he's qualified not by his past, but by his future. See, the author of Hebrews latches on to this word forever 
that we see in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever. How can you be a priest forever? You have to defeat death somehow. You know, a priest can't be a priest forever if he dies. And yet, by Christ's resurrection, he lives forever, and he can serve as a priest forever. If you're going to be this messianic, this Messiah high priest following the line of Melchizedek, you better have power over death. And when we see Christ as our high priest, that's exactly what we see. He's appointed not because of his family line, but because of his indestructible life and eternal future. Third line of evidence. We know Jesus is this Messiah priest because he has been confirmed with an oath. So I'm jumping down to 20 and 21 here. And it's not without oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, Psalm 110.4. So if you're at the inauguration ceremony of a new priest, you know, the old priest died, the new one's being brought in, what you would not see is a swearing into the office. There's no oaths taken. There's no, you know, the upper priest is kind of swearing in the lower priest. That doesn't happen. Priests were not sworn in. And yet, here with Christ, we have an oath, which we remember from Hebrews 6 that Matt taught us a few weeks ago. When God makes an oath, it is always significant. See, Jesus didn't swear himself in. God the Father made an oath that Jesus is the high priest. So we read Hebrews six thirteen, right? When God made a promise to Abraham about him making oaths, since he had no one <clears throat> greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. For people always swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show even more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, when God wants to show his truthfulness and the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarantees it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, the fact that it's impossible for God to lie and that God himself is swearing by himself, we have a refuge. We can flee to him. We know that he is trustworthy and we have this hope set before us. So God has swore he will not change his mind. Christ is this Messiah who has been prophesied by David and who is this Melchizedekian priest. So we have this emphasis on the eternal nature of, of his priesthood. So, you know, how do we know that Christ is kind of the final stage in God's redemptive plan? How do we know that we will be saved? How do we have assurance of hope? So, like, what if we find out a couple thousand years from now yeah, we're kind of like the Jews in this temporary situation where the priesthood's going to change again. You know, they were under Levi, we're under Christ, but then the real thing is still to come. We can be certain that that's not the case, that Christ is true, that Christ is the sure and steady anchor for our faith because God swore that you are a priest 
forever. This is an everlasting priesthood that goes through eternity. God has sworn he will not change his mind. We have that same idea said twice in the Psalms and quoted twice here in Hebrews. God swore he will not change his mind. This is sure. This is eternal. Christ is our priest forever. It's ultimate because God himself took an oath to tell us this truth. Therefore, the priesthood has changed. We are no longer under Levi. We are now under Christ. And because the priesthood and the law are linked, we're under a new law as well. So we put away what is useless and what is worthless, verse 18, and we take up a better hope, a hope that draws us near to God. Um, I'm getting that from verses 12, 18 through 19, and 21. So he's not saying the Levitical priesthood was bad and now what we have is good. He's saying the Levitical priesthood was good for a time, but now it's outdated. It's like when we're going down to Louisville for the men's event for T4G and Matt's like, awesome, I have a cassettes, tons of cassettes, an entire box of Phil Collins cassette tapes. It's six hours in the road. We can listen to greatest hits six times on the way. I'm like, I love Phil Collins as much as anybody else. <laughs> However, like, my car has a CD player and Bluetooth. Like, the cassettes are good, but they're, they're worthless now because we're living in 2019, and like, even a 15-year-old car does not have a cassette player. Under the Old Covenant, it was good for the time, but now something better has come, and we go with the better. See, under the Old Covenant, you could not draw near to God. The tabernacle or the temple, temple later on was actually designed to keep people away from God, to keep them separated. So you have like these concentric circles where you have the court of the Gentiles where anyone could go. And then you have the court of the women where men and women could go, but the women <laughs> stopped there. Then you have the court of um, what, the court of the of Israel, where just the men of Israel could go, but then they stopped there. Then the court of the priests, where only priests could go, but then they stopped there. Then the holy place, where only the high priest could go. And then we have the most holy place, where the high priest could go once a year, where it's kind of these concentric circles to keep you out of the presence of God. But now, under Christ, we're living in a new day, a new age, where we draw near with confidence to Christ, where we draw near to the throne of grace because Christ is the minister of a better confidence, one that gives us assurance of hope. The priesthood has changed. We are not under the external laws of Moses, but rather the internal law of Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's all chapter 8, so we'll get that in January. So what's the application from this? We looked at history last week of Melchizedek. We looked at the theology. Okay, why is this significant? Now, what do we make of it? What's it have to do with you and me? You know, I think studying theology, studying history has value in itself. I'm convinced that we saw that last week and so far. But what's the application that this author of Hebrews makes for us and for the church that he's writing to? What's the payoff of it all? Let me point out four things. Number one, Christians have assurance. Right? In reading the book of Hebrews, you might be like, I feel like the author of Hebrews wants me to constantly be questioning my salvation. Like, we just got through Hebrews 6. I just got an email that I'm scheduled to teach Hebrews 10, which, if you thought Hebrews 6 was kind of offensive and harsh and 
a little bit bitey. Just wait till we get to 10. Um, so, but the author of Hebrews wants to, us to have assurance because Christ holds the office of priest forever. Therefore, we can constantly have hope in him. He saves completely, verse 25 says. You know, the transition between the book of Exodus and Genesis, Genesis and Exodus to go in order, is stunning to me. So if you finish out the book of Genesis, right, Joseph's in Egypt, his family's there. They have freedom. They have prosperity. Everybody in Egypt loves them. They can do pretty much whatever they want. They are kind of, you know, the, the favorite child of Egypt. And then you get to Exodus 1. And there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And the people of of Israel are in slavery because of it. Because Pharaoh died and a new one rose up, their favor turned into slavery. Put that illustration in a priestly category, right? So you go to Frank the priest and you're like, Frank, I need you to intercede before God for me. I need to make sure that you are sacrificing for me daily, for my family, for my sins. And Frank is a faithful priest. He promises to do everything that you asked him so that you are not judged by God. But then Frank dies and your new priest comes up, Walter. What's Walter going to do? Is he going to, you know, continue on sacrificing for you and your family? Or is Walter going to completely forget about you because he didn't know you? Or is Walter going to be a terrible priest, like was pretty consistent in the history of Israel, and not make sacrifices at all? You know, because Frank died, we have no assurance of what the next priest is going to do for us. However, with Christ, he's an eternal high priest. The one who makes the promises is the one who fulfills the promises. He doesn't die and hope the next priest picks it up, but he is always interceding for the forgiveness of his people. So we can have absolute confidence before God because we have absolute confidence in this high priest that we have. Not a temporary one who will serve for 40, 50, 60 years, but one who serves eternally, who serves forever. Christ is sure and he is eternal. So we can have assurance based on Christ's priesthood. You know, if we're looking for assurance of our faith based on our own performance, what I can do to please God, we're not going to have it. That's not what the gospel teaches. If we're looking for assurance based on our emotions, you know, I feel safe today because I'm having a good day. Tomorrow, maybe not. We're not going to have it because, you know, the gospel's not about our emotions. If we're looking for assurance on a false faith, thinking, I've been in church, I've done the outward duties, we're not going to find it because that's not the gospel. That's more like the outward Levitical priesthood. That's no more. But if our faith is based on Christ, that he lived the perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death, rose again from the grave, and is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for all those who put their faith in him, then our Assurance is rock solid because Christ is a faithful and unshakable high priest. We can have assurance based on this new priesthood that has come together in Christ. Second, we have a fitting high priest. That is, the high priest that we need is a high priest that we have, right? 
He's holy, verse 26 says. He always lives righteously before God. He's innocent. He's devoted to what is good, not evil. He's undefiled by sin. He's unstained. He's separated from sin. Um, And he's exalted above the heavens. He's not just another man on earth, but he is an exalted high priest sitting at the right hand of God, as Psalm 110 verse 1 tells us the Messiah would do. There's no longer a greater high priest to come. We're not looking for something better, but what we have is exactly what we need in Christ. He is our fitting high priest. We should be thankful and rejoice in this. Because the priest that we need is the priest that we have. You know, our entire economy and culture, it seems, is based on this idea of what you have isn't good enough. Like, be honest, are you still using everything that you received for Christmas last year that you were excited about a year ago? If so, are your kids. Like, the the idea of our culture is you constantly need something better. You know, maybe you got a gadget of some sort that's like, hey, this is top of the line. We bought a TV last Black Friday. We were like, man, we got such a great deal on our TV. And now like the Black Friday ads came out and I'm like, we paid like twice as much for a TV that a TV twice the size this year cost. I'm like, we could get like an 80 inch TV for half as much as we paid for a 32 last year. Like what is going on? Or maybe, you know, the pants that you got for Christmas last year, you're like, finally, I'm updating my wardrobe. They're now a little bit too snug on you and you need something bigger. You know, the phone that was top of the line when when the Verizon guy sold it to you no longer gets updates. It no longer works. Things don't last. We always need something better, something newer. But with Christ, he is eternally fitting as high priest. Priest that we have in Jesus is eternally the one that we need. There's never an idea of maybe I should look for something better because we have the best. Nothing better will ever come. Number three, we see that Christ made a once for all sacrifice for our sins. So there's constant work if you're a priest, you know. If, if you're a priest, you're not only sacrificing daily for the people, but you have to sacrifice for yourself as well. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm a priest in the tabernacle, I wake up, I make my sacrifice for my own sins so then I can intercede. And, you know, Ryan comes to me and it's like, Ryan, Dan, I sin. Okay, let me go make a sacrifice. Carmel comes, Dan, I sin. Okay, let me make a sacrifice. Matt comes, Dan, I sin. Dana comes, Dan, I send. And it's like, Matt's back in line again, and Ryan's here again. I'm like, can you guys just quit sinning? Like, can I take my union-sanctioned break? Like, goodness gracious, I am so busy right now. But, like, there are constantly sacrifices to me. I've, like, made it halfway through this left wing of the Sunday school room, and I'm already just completely overwhelmed with the work that I have to do. We see later on, there's no chair in the tabernacle. The priest never sits down. He's always at his post working. But now, under this Melchizedekian priesthood, under the Messiah's priesthood, we don't have daily sacrifices. Jesus never wakes up and makes a sacrifice for himself because he himself is sinless. He has no reason to sacrifice. And... 
because he offered a once-for-all sacrifice in his own flesh instead of sacrificing a bull or a lamb that can never fully take away sins. He sacrificed his own perfect life for us. We have a greater sacrifice that's efficient to take away all of our sins. It doesn't just cover over them for a time until we sin again. But Christ's sacrifice once for all paid for sins for all who trust in him. So he doesn't make sacrifices again and again and again and again. But we have not only a greater priest, but a greater sacrifice that we find in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to hang out here a long time because once we get to chapter 10 of Hebrews, you know, we're going to get into that a lot. I told you last week, chapters 7 through 10 are kind of like the heart of this book. It's where all the theology comes together. It's a little bit like you're at a music festival. You know, you're listening to the main stage, but you can constantly hear stuff coming in from over here and a performance from over there. It's never, you know, just focused. But as we're in chapter 7, we're hearing echoes of chapter 8. We're hearing echoes of chapter 10 coming in. It's all linked together in this book. And finally, number 4. Jesus ministers out of his perfection, not out of his weakness. So we see, you know, in this chapter, the weakness of the high priest was they're sinful and they die. Jesus doesn't have either of these weaknesses. He is perfect and he is eternal. He has been made perfect by being God himself. He was put through the ringer as a man on earth so that he can sympathize with us, so that he's qualified to be saying, you know, up here, I understand the pain and the temptation and the difficulty you're going through. He was made perfect. He was made qualified to serve as our high priest. And as a perfect strong, eternal high priest, he can actually get things done for us. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, we're talking about Psalms again, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is a priest that's not weak, but who is strong. For some reason, I've spent a lot of time on the phone or on chat with customer service for various companies this week. And we've all been there. Hey, my package isn't here. Hey, you sent the wrong thing. I am so sorry about that. Like, yeah, your package is delayed. It got lost in shipment. I'm really sorry about that. Okay, me too. Like, when's my package going to show up? No, no, no. It's lost, but it's on its way. And it's like, can you, can you do anything for me? Sure, I will send a request over to our shipping department, and they'll get back with you in 48 hours. It's Friday, so Sunday, oh, no, 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 Tuesday. Or, you know, another example, hey, you shipped me the wrong size jacket. And they're like, okay, well, let me get to our inventory department, and they'll contact you, and our billing department, and they'll send you a refund. And then five to seven business days, you'll see the money back in your credit card, and you can have a label to send back the jacket. I'm like... Can you just do this for me? We don't have that weakness of I can't get done what I'm trying to do when it comes to Christ. Christ is the one who made the sacrifice. He is the one who is eternal. He is ministering out of his perfection and his power. When sins need to be forgiven, he is the one who forgives sins. When grace needs to be given during times of weakness and temptation, he is the one who gives grace in himself to help us overcome temptation. When we need to be held fast to Christ because our faith is not strong 
enough to keep us. He is the one who holds us steady so that we will never forsake him or leave him. Christ is the one who ministers out of perfection, out of strength. He is the great eternal high priest. So there we have it. Melchizedekian high priest, Hebrews chapter 7. What have we seen? You know, it's a difficult, dense chapter. We saw last week that Melchizedek was this strange figure in history who pops up, blesses Abraham, and then disappears from history. But when David meditates on this account from Genesis 14, as he's writing Psalm 10, he realizes this strange guy, maybe he is the blueprint of what our eternal priesthood looks like. Maybe the law is temporary. The law is not eternal, but this Melchizedekian priesthood is. So he writes prophecies foreshadowing Christ to come. And then Jesus comes bringing this new, maybe we should say this old priesthood that predated the law, that predated Moses and Aaron. We have this new priesthood fulfilled in Christ, not based on Jesus' lineage from, from Judah, but his indestructible life. And now in him, we can have full assurance of faith if we trust him. We're no longer looking for a better priest. We are no longer longing for a different priest. He offers a better sacrifice than what the law could provide. And he ministers to us gently out of his perfection. Therefore, remember, we're in a time of persecution in the book of Hebrews. If you continue a Christian, you're going to be plundered, thrown in jail. Maybe soon you're going to be thrown in the Colosseum to die. Is it worth sticking it out? Is it worth the hardships that living as a Christian brings? Is it worth the awkward family Christmas dinners? Is it worth not getting promotions at work because you're staying faithful to what you believe? Is it worth being on the wrong side of history as society would tell us? Is it worth the sacrifices of serving the church? Is it worth getting up early to snowplow the parking lot in the cold? Is it worth doing family devotions with your kids when you're exhausted and you don't have time? Is it worth all of these things that Christianity may cost us? If we believe this book, if we believe this chapter that Jesus is our great and eternal high priest, don't turn away from him. We know with certainty that it is definitely worth it. So pray with me. Lord God, your redemptive plan is amazing. That from the very beginning, you plan to send Christ to be our true and great high priest. That even through the law, which was a good temporary measure, you had these echoes of deficiency in it that always were pointing us forward to Christ. And Lord, in the fullness of time, you sent Christ to be born, to be grace incarnate, to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to rise victoriously from the grave, defeating death, freeing those enslaved to the power of death 
so that we could serve you with Christ, our perfect intercessor and priest. Lord, um, as temptations come to forsake him, to ignore him, to look for something easier than worshiping Christ, I pray that you would give us endurance and perseverance. I pray that we would see Christ's greatness, that we would be in awe of him, that we would worship him whatever the cost. Lord, we pray that for those who do not know Christ, that they would see his glory and that they would worship him and give their lives to him as well. Lord, we thank you for this morning, the time that we've had um, in your word, and we pray for um, Pastor Jeff as he's about to preach in this um, upcoming worship service. We pray that um, through everything that happens, Christ would be glorified because we have seen that he is deserving of all praise and glory. Lord, we pray this in his mighty and eternal name. Amen.